Hi everyone and welcome to the SciComm podcast, where I talk about science with scientists. As always, I'm your host Dr. Mike. Don't forget to subscribe to the SciComm podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or simply through your own podcasting app. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron of the SciComm podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash SciComm. And so, without any further ado, let's talk science. Hi everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the SciComm podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike, and with me today is Marion Leary. Hi Marion, how are you? Hey Dr. Mike, I'm doing well, thank you. Cool. So Marion Leary is the Director of Innovation Research for the Centre of Resuscitation Science at the University of Pennsylvania and the Innovation Specialist at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Nursing. She has focused her research and education over the past 12 years on cardiac arrest and CPR quality with the current goal of developing innovative strategies to improve CPR and resuscitation training. So, Marion, if you could maybe just start off by telling us what your two, count them two, master's degrees in both nursing and public health were like. Sure. So I did them both part-time, so they spanned... Um, most of my early adult life. Um, the one was in nursing and it specifically was around nursing leadership and administration and it paired with my public health master's degree. So for the public health master's degree I focused on my research passion of cardiac arrest and resuscitation as well as using social media and medical crowdfunding um, to help people who were uninsured or underinsured pay for medical expenses. So between those two master's degrees, I was able to focus on both of my um, science and science communication, social media passions. Oh, that's brilliant. So it encompasses pretty much everything you, you love. And yes, you're helping people does. as well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, for so, sure. Yeah. So could you maybe tell us how you, I know those were your master's degrees. So what, what did you do beforehand? What, got, what led you to that? Point in your life? So I had a very circuitous route to finding my um, life's work of doing research and resuscitation science. Um, before I went to school for nursing, and um, so I have an undergrad degree in nursing science, I was a special events producer for the city and nonprofit. I worked for a lot of nonprofit organizations, so that's really where my public health passion came into play. Um, I worked for a lot of uh, local aid service organizations and public health organizations in Philadelphia, and then started helping them to do fundraising, which led to special events production, which is so um, funny because all of those skills from doing special events and logistics and running nonprofit organizations translates really well into research. As you're running um, a research program, you're doing research studies, the logistical skills between the two areas are really very transferable and very similar. So it all has helped me in what I'm doing today. So did you require a master's degree in order to do like an, your next job or was it just a passion of yours? So I felt that, so I went into nursing because I wanted to do research and I felt like the path towards doing research for me was going to require not only a master's degree in nursing, but again, my passion in public health. And then um, from there going on to a PhD program. So it was sort of the progression of where I started and where I thought 
I needed to get to, which obviously is a PhD. Yeah. So you talked um, just uh, beforehand about people being underinsured. So was, can you maybe t- tell us more about that? And is it a major problem in uh, Philadelphia and out, you know further in, in, in the United States? It is. Uh, in Philadelphia and around this country, people are underinsured or underinsured at a very high rate. Um, the folks that I was helping... So I ran a nonprofit for about three years called Sink or Swim Philadelphia that I founded. And um, we helped raise money for people to pay for medical expenses. A lot of people um, in this country who are uninsured or underinsured have to choose between paying for life-sustaining medications, medical procedures, equipment, etc., versus paying rent getting food, mm-hmm. all of those other life necessities. And so every month we would feature a new Philadelphia area resident who was struggling and we would use our social media platforms to help crowdfund to pay for their medical expenses. I mean, that's a brilliant resource for people that obviously need it. What sort of money? I'm, I'm Obviously, you're, you're living in America, so you can maybe tell us more accurate uh, data about how much money things cost, say, to go for a, an operation, for example. Um, it really, it depends on if you have any type of insurance, no insurance, supplemental insurance, what type of procedure is. But the people I was helping, they were owing hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills, if not more. I helped a patient who had a liver transplant. Him and his wife were having to file for bankruptcy because they owed the hospital millions of dollars i mean it was just it was beyond yeah it was beyond insane this woman was actually an er nurse her husband worked full-time and he just happened to get cancer that then led to liver failure and needing a liver transplant yeah this country right now um we're having some problems with taking care of our own when it comes to devastating medical conditions. I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but has it always been like this? I mean, or has insurance just gotten worse over the years? I think it's um, gotten worse. I feel I feel like it's gotten worse, right? Um, I'm living in it right now, so for me, it feels bad. Um, and yeah. for the people in this country, it definitely, uh, uninsured and underinsured, folks have had a much harder time in the last um, couple of decades. Um, I'm not a historian. I don't know what it was like 50 years ago, but I feel like it has gotten worse and the insurance um, companies make it a lot harder to um, insure and get coverage for things. Um, One of the goals of Sink or Swim for me was to help people navigate those systems when you're sick or ill or taking care of a family member, the last thing you want to do or have time or energy to do is fight with insurance companies or collection agencies or whoever to try and get the care, medication, procedure that you need. And so um, part of what I did was call some and help be the sort of in-between for the families and patients and those places who were requiring these sums of money. That's great. Well, they were very lucky to have you. So could you maybe tell us what exactly CPR is and why we need to train people? Sure. So when somebody's heart suddenly stops beating, we call that a sudden cardiac arrest event. And um, to be able to circulate 
oxygenated blood to the brain and other vital organs when somebody's heart suddenly stops beating, you need to perform CPR or cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Doing chest compressions on the center of the chest at a quick and um, deep rate and depth will help to circulate blood to the brain again and vital organs while that person's heart has stopped beating. There are different reasons somebody's heart stops beating for adults. Generally, they can have some type of cardiac event. So you either have a blockage in your heart that then causes the heart stop beating, or you can have some type of arrhythmia um, where the mm -hmm. heart is not beating correctly. Um, if the person has a cardiac arrest due to an arrhythmia, they need both CPR and then also a defibrillation from one of those automated external defibrillator or you know, quote unquote shock boxes, which are generally out in, to, in the public. Yeah, I've, I have to admit, I've, I think I've only seen about two um, just around the city where I live. So they're not, they're not all that common, but they are out there. Um, so could you maybe tell us uh, what is the right way and what is the wrong way to carry out CPR? Sure. So um, for an adult, if you see somebody collapse and they're not responsive, so you want to make sure they're unresponsive and they're not breathing normally. So you would say, hey, you know, you, are you okay? If they look like they're um, not breathing or again, not breathing normally. So gasping for air, this type of agonal breathing, we call it, is not breathing normally. Then they are potentially in a sudden cardiac arrest state and you should perform CPR. So you should have someone call your emergency medical providers in our country. It's 911. Not sure what it is where you're at. 999. Um, <laughs> 999. And then um, press hard and fast on the center of the chest. So in this country right now, we, for lay providers who have no medical background and do not feel comfortable performing rescue breaths, so that's doing sort of mouth to mouth, um, mm -hmm. we recommend hands-only CPR. So just pressing hard and fast on the center of the chest until EMS arrives or until an AED arrives or if the scene becomes unsafe, things like that. Otherwise, just doing chest compressions until another rescuer arrives. That's sorry. Sorry, I was just going to ask, does just doing those chest compressions, is that enough to save someone? So it is enough. So for every minute that someone goes in cardiac arrest without bystander CPR, their chance of survival decreases by 10%. In the U.S., it takes anywhere from five to eight minutes for EMS to arrive, especially in major cities. So if you're not performing CPR, by the time EMS arrives, the chance of survival is greater than 80%. So in our country, survival rates for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest are about 12%. Most yeah, that's people, low, isn't it? It is low. And most people in the U.S. do not receive bystander CPR. Right now, the rate is about 40% of cardiac arrest victims receive bystander CPR. In my city, it's only 16%. 16% of cardiac arrest victims receive bystander CPR. And bystander CPR, when performed effectively, quickly, can double to even triple the chance of survival. So it's really, really important to do something. And I mean, hands-only CPR, yeah. chest compressions, though it's not providing the amount of oxygen transportation to your body that 
a normal beating heart does, it's enough to keep the brain perfused. The brain is really susceptible to oxygen deprivation, and even that minimal amount of oxygen that gets circulated through the body because of chest compressions is enough to decrease the brain injury. Cool. So, wow, I can't believe those those percentages are so low. Um, so are you saying if someone had a, you know, a coronary event, uh, you know, say at your bus stop, uh, and you perform CPR and mouth to mouth, and say the ambulance never came, would would it be enough? Would you be able to save their life and for them to go on just about their day? Well, there there's a lot more to it than that, and it really did, every cardiac arrest victim is different. I have seen so many cardiac arrest victims, and um, they're all their trajectories and paths are different. Mm-hmm. Um, if you perform CPR right away, if you know, you use an AED and they are in a shockable rhythm, it is possible to get somebody back right away. Um, That doesn't happen all the time, and that doesn't mean what you're doing is not working. It's just there are so many different ways that a cardiac arrest event can occur, and um, the trajectory of medical, um, whatever's going on, there are things that it's just there's no way to know. Um, who's going to wake up right away and who's not. But then, you know, the idea here is that we're keeping these people alive and keeping their brain oxygenated enough so that when they get to advanced care, and that's EMS and then in the hospital, there are other things we can do. So if a cardiac arrest victim is not waking up right away, but they do get their pulse back, we can do something called targeted temperature management, where we lower the body temperature for a certain period of time, and that increases survival and increases neurological recovery. Cool. So obviously you can't do that out in the public. You need to go to a hospital for that. Um, so can you maybe tell us, is CPR better or worse than using a defibrillator or do you need them in combination? Yeah, so you need them in combination. So CPR circulates oxygenated blood to the brain and vital organs. The AED, if you're in a, if the cardiac arrest victim is having a cardiac arrhythmia, Um, it can shock the heart back into a normal rhythm. Not everybody needs to be defibrillated, but everyone needs CPR. But if you're out in the public and there's an AED available, you should always apply it and then follow the instructions. An AED walks you through what to do, and it also walks you through how to do CPR. So if you don't know how to do CPR, you put this device on, it will also tell you what to do in terms of performing CPR for the most part. Okay, um, so I don't know if you're a fan of the U.S. Uh, office or not, but there's a scene where they're doing resuscitation. So I'm wondering if you can share this or just sort of tell us if this is real or not. Um, the sort of speed at which they are doing it is about 60 BPM, and it's to the the beat of a BG song, "Staying Alive." Is that real or? <laughs> so, so there was a huge marketing campaign um, a couple years ago saying that if you see somebody have a cardiac arrest, perform CPR to the beat of staying alive. So the correct rate is, right now, correct guidelines rate is 100 to 120 beats per minute. The BG song, Staying Alive, is about 100 beats per minute. Um, You know, but 
if you're humming the BG song in your head at a rate of 60 beats per minute, I know, then I know. you're gonna you're gonna be doing chest compressions at that rate. So, you know, if you have that song on your phone and somebody happens to collapse, then maybe you could do it at a rate of 100. But for the most part, what we tell people is push hard and fast on the center of the chest. And something is better. Doing something is always better than doing nothing. The person will absolutely die if you stand there and do nothing. If you at least attempt CPR, you're giving that person a chance at survival. And I say this all the time, you can't hurt someone worse than dead. Um, So, you know, we really highly encourage people to do something. I mean, is there a too fast a speed at which you can perform uh, CPR? There is. Um, And at that point, it doesn't give the heart um, a chance to fill properly. And yeah. so um, you can compress too fast, which is why we say 100 to 120 beats per minute. We've done a number of studies and there have been a number of studies published and the general public generally gets the rate around the guidelines. So, yeah, so um, you can trust the public. <laughs> for, the, for the most part, when it comes to rate, um, they do a really, a really good job. So and are there honestly, any... Inst- yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, and honestly, anyone who attempts to help save someone's life, um, I think that's a good job in and of itself. Oh, yeah, of course. Because I'm sure a lot of people would just, I don't know if they're awkward or they're just not confident about, you know, if something actually happens. But people respond differently in different ways, I suppose. For sure. Um, so could you maybe tell us if there are any instances where, you know, when you should not use CPR and why? So um, if someone's heart is beating, so if somebody just um, faints or collapses, but they're moving, they're breathing normally, they're sort of semi-conscious, they do not need CPR. Their heart is still beating. Um, So you wouldn't want to then perform CPR on them. So the only time you would perform CPR on someone is if their heart has stopped beating. Yeah, so just check for a pulse first. That's sort of like the number one thing, is it? Yeah, the, it, sometimes it's hard for the general public to know if there's a pulse or not. So if you see somebody collapse, they're not responding and they're not breathing normally, begin CPR. That's what we tell everyone. Uh, are there any, um, I can't remember what the term is, but you know those uh, advertisements where you see sort of uh, four letters for four different stages to, you know, to check for airways and that type of thing? Do you have anything like that? So it used to be ABCs, right? Airway, breathing, circulation. It changed a couple years ago to CAB, circulation, airway, breathing, because we want people to circulate the oxygenated blood in the body. That's where the hands-only CPR for the lay public comes into play. Um, You know, in our country right now, we're having a a big issue with opioid overdose, and um, that's when somebody has a respiratory arrest that then leads to a cardiac arrest. Those folks need to have uh, rescue breathing as well because they're not getting oxygen into their system. So um, and at that point, you'd want to do mouth-to-mouth as well as chest compressions. And also for children, children who have a cardiac arrest, it's usually a respiratory issue, either drowning or choking. So you'd want to do mouth to mouth as well. Is there, I know this is sort of grim, but is there a point at which you should stop doing CPR or do you just keep going until, until, you know, the, the person reacts? Yeah, so for an out of hospital cardiac arrest, if you're a lay provider, 
then you would keep doing CPR until EMS arrives or until somebody else um, offers to take over. Or if the scene becomes unsafe or you're, you start to feel exhausted and that like you can't continue. Um, in the in-hospital setting, you know, we keep going until we've exhausted all other options. And that really just depends on the cause of the cardiac arrest, the patient's um, medical history, etc. I mean, when you're giving CPR, it's obviously just to keep the oxygen, any oxygen, any residual oxygen in the blood moving around the circulatory system. But I mean, without a defibrillator, is there is the person going to recover? So if they're not having a a arrhythmia, then they don't need an AED, and then you would just continue to do CPR. At some point, you'd have to start giving oxygen. We think there's enough oxygen in the body for um, somewhere between somewhere around maybe like eight minutes. Um, so at some point when EMS arrives, they would start giving mouth to mouth, um, resuscitation as well. Um, yeah. you know, if somebody is in an arrhythmia, they would need to be defibrillated. And if the defibrillator doesn't work, that's when they need advanced care in the EP lab by a cardiology and, um, but that's sort of the in-hospital setting and the advanced care after that. Is there enough oxygen, you know, when a person gives mouth to mouth? I know obviously we breathe out CO2 most, mostly, but uh, what's the percentage of oxygen required, you know, for it to be effective? Well, it's really about um, the technique of doing mouth to mouth. You want to make sure it's going into the lungs. You want to make sure it's not going into the stomach. You want to make sure you're giving, you know, anywhere around like eight breaths per minute. So you mm -hmm. don't want to hyper oxygenate them because um, that is not good, also. So, is it usually uh, perform mouth to mouth once or one breath and then you go back to CPR? Is that right? Uh, two breaths to 30 breaths. compressions. Okay, cool. Um, so <clears throat> what sort of damage uh, can occur if a person doesn't receive CPR immediately? Uh, so uh, like I had mentioned earlier, the brain is very susceptible to oxygen deprivation. Our biggest concern is brain damage. So if you have a cardiac arrest and CPR is not occurring, then the chance of neurological recovery gets less and less. That's really the biggest issue. And then you have other organ failure because other organs are not getting oxygenated blood as well. Cool. So it's extremely important that people uh, get trained in CPR. I for imagine. sure. Yep, for sure. And get trained. Not everybody needs to be certified in CPR, but everyone should be trained in CPR. So what's the difference? How do you become certified? What does that mean? Yeah, so there are certification courses. There's a certain amount of hours and training that you need to do to be certified to perform CPR. Most people who get certification are people who need it for their jobs. So mm -hmm. lifeguards, maybe babysitters, obviously healthcare providers, um, emergency responders, things like that. Um, and that just means you went through a CPR training course through an accredited organization. So in the U.S., the American Heart Association, the American Red Cross, places like that. 
to be trained in CPR, you just need to learn the skills to, per to perform CPR and save someone's life. So at the Center for Resuscitation Science, we have a program we call the Mobile CPR Project, where we go out into communities in Philadelphia and we train them in hands-only CPR for free. It takes about 30 minutes or less. We show them how to perform um, chest compressions. We walk them through what an AED is, things like that. And so they've been trained. It's not a certification class. They don't leave there with a certification card. But if they should encounter someone who has a cardiac arrest, they would know the skills to save a life. That's great. So uh, do you sort of go around a lot of public buildings or what's what's your sort of audience? Sure. Target uh, audience? We are targeting low SES, so low socioeconomic status communities in Philadelphia. So in this country, low SES communities are at an increased risk of experiencing a sudden cardiac arrest, but a decreased um, they have decreased access to CPR training and decreased bystander CPR rates. So we're trying to decrease those disparities by um, training communities in CPR. Cool. Uh, so this year is a big year for you. Uh, you will be starting your PhD. Could you maybe tell us a bit about that uh, and when you're starting? Sure. Uh, yeah, really excited. I'm going to be starting this fall in August at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm going to, it, the PhD program I was, I'm starting is through nursing. And I'm thinking about, I'm not exactly sure yet, but I'm thinking about <laughs> focusing on obviously innovation and technology and mm -hmm. um, potentially using a methodology called design thinking to um, along with the resuscitation science work I'm doing. So I'm not exactly sure yet. I have to take two years of coursework first um, before I start the dissertation component. So I'm still trying to figure out what exactly my focus is going to be. I also am very interested in science communication. So if there's some way to work in a science communication portion to that, um, I'm, I'm looking into that as well. I'm really lucky that at the University of Pennsylvania, we have the Annenberg School of Communication, and they have a lot of science communication courses as well that I'm going to potentially be looking into for this PhD program. Wow, I'd, they all sound wonderful. Um, so you're obviously lucky enough that you uh, have a bit of time to decide what your PhD spe you know, spe is specifically going to focus on. Um, so you mentioned there you have to do a bit of coursework for two years. Can you maybe explain what that is, first of all? Sure. Sort of, um, yeah. Yeah. We so for the PhD program, we have to take a number of different statistical classes, qualitative research methods, quantitative research methods courses, and then a number of concentration courses. So once I decide exactly where my focus is going to be for the dissertation, there's a number of courses. There are elective courses, basically. I can pick out elective courses from all over the University of Pennsylvania that'll help me uh, just be better successful at the dissertation component and of the research that I'm going to do towards that dissertation. Cool. So it's sort of preparing you for the, the dissertation part. Exactly. Um, so is the total time, is it about five years for you over there? So part time right now, I think the goal is five years. I have a personal goal. So I have a 
12-year-old kid who's in sixth grade right now, middle school in the U.S., <laughs> my goal is to be done my Ph.D. either before or at the same time she graduates high school. So she graduates in six years. So that is my goal. Five years, five to six years. So you're racing against each other. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's great. Uh, best of luck with that. Thanks. Um, so can you maybe tell us uh, what exactly is Start Talking Science? I found that on your on your bio, I was very interested in it. Yeah, so um, that is a science communication group that I'm on the board of, or the programming committee of, and we work to take science out of the research labs and out of the academic institutions and bring it into the community. So. Um, it's an annual event where we have local scientists and researchers present their work um, as posters at a free event in Philadelphia. And we go through two different workshops with the researchers to help them take their scientific language and make it a little more generalizable and easy to understand for the public. So getting rid of a lot of the technical jargon. And then they create posters and then they present them um, at this event. It is, it's a phenomenal event. I got involved with them about four or five years ago. I had gone to the event um, just as a participant and just absolutely fell in love with it and then started volunteering and um, joined the programming committee and have been involved with them ever since. So is it sort of like a miniature uh, conference? It's a miniature poster session, um, (laughs) but very um, not academic at all. Really, we try and make it very um, comfortable. Is it open to the public? Yes, it's it's open to the public. We, We advertise it, again, to the public and also to students. We want people in the community to have access to all the amazing science and research that's going on in Philadelphia because... They're the ones who will potentially need whatever research we're working on. Yeah, that's exactly what every city needs, I'm sure, definitely. For sure. Uh, are you? Have you ever been to something called a, pan, a pint of science in so, Philadelphia? So I haven't been to pint of science, but we ha- also have taste of science and we also have nerd night. Um, and I've, I've been <laughs> tell to, us all about those <laughs> sure um, I've been to and presented at nerd night so that nerd night is also takes place in one of the bars or pubs in Philadelphia and they have different researchers and scientists or technologists come out and just explain the research work that they're doing to um, the general public whoever comes out to the bar that night um, it's a great way to just take your science again out of the ivory tower out of academia and engage with the people who are going to potentially need the work that you're doing so for me as somebody who's really interested in spreading the good word of cpr training to the masses there's no better way than to go out to these types of science communication events and talk to the general public that's great i love hearing about all those different psychom events yeah, Philadelphia is yeah. amazing. Um, we have so many science events. We have a big science festival every year. We have a big Philadelphia tech festival every year. And there are so many ways that scientists and researchers can get out of the labs and um, interact with the public. Yeah, that's exactly what we need, especially now more than ever, I'm sure. Um, so 
You mentioned that you're a big sort of advocate for uh, SciComm. And since we're doing a podcast, have you had any previous experience being on a podcast? So I have been interviewed on a number of podcasts, and I also hosted my own podcast for about a, I think it was a year or a little more, called Steamrollers, where we featured women who were paving the way in science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And through that podcast, I got to interview a number of amazing scientists and researchers, engineers, who were just doing incredible things in um, their area, and they were incredible women in science and STEAM. Um, I spoke to um, anyone from a rocket scientist to an engineer at Walt Disney World um, to an aspiring astronaut. I mean, it ran the gamut, and um, these women were all amazing. It's fantastic. That's pretty much what we love to do here as well. Um, yeah, I, so. <laughs> I think, you know, for women in science, it's really good to have a platform to get their voices, their work out to the public. And for me, that was the best part about doing that podcast. Exactly. Yeah, that's brilliant work. I especially love the name Steamrollers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so can you maybe just tell us a bit about some of the companies you founded and uh, why you founded them? Sure. So I founded two companies through my university. So at the University of Pennsylvania, they have a program called the Upstart Program, which helps faculty and staff any, and students commercialize any inventions they create while they're at Penn. And so as a faculty and staff members at the University of Pennsylvania, um, the first company I created was called Resuscore, and that was with two of my other colleagues, and we were looking at um, creating digital platforms to help educate healthcare providers in something called post-cardiac arrest care. Um, it was a good learning experience for us. Um, that was definitely a fail fast, <laughs> learn a lot <laughs> company. Um, we did not get very far in the process. Um, and the timing of what we wanted to do versus where the research and, and um, other sort of healthcare priorities were, um, it, just, it just didn't work out and it was fine. But that experience helped me prepare for my other company that I created through pen called Emerge Labs and that company um, is commercializing the inventions I created while doing research on using virtual and augmented reality for CPR training and education. And wow, so, so how, okay. how did you actually use AR for that? So um, for the augmented reality um, I have a platform that um, we created using the Microsoft HoloLens uh, mixed reality oh, headset. Yeah. Um, we integrated a CPR training mannequin. So the Lairdall company has a CPR training mannequin. We integrated into the HoloLens. So as somebody is doing CPR on the mannequin, their real-time data is rendered through the HoloLens and then is projected back out onto the mannequin as a holographic image of a real circulatory system. So you can see the blood flow to the brain and vital organs based on the actual quality of CPR you're performing. 
Wow. So that's a good training tool to see if you're doing it correctly. Exactly. And the idea there was to heighten the realism. So we want people to understand why doing high quality CPR is really important. And if you can see that your chest compressions are not at a high enough quality that it's sending oxygenated rich blood to the brain at a rate that it needs to, then you're more likely to improve the quality of your CPR in practice and hopefully then in real life. And it's still at a very early stage. I'm still looking for grants to, um, we have a beta version that actually works, but I haven't been able to test it yet to see if it actually does produce better quality CPR. So if that's still in the works, maybe that'll be my dissertation. Yeah, no, I would love to see uh, more things like that, you know, adopt this new fine technology that we have for saving lives. Yeah, there's um, so many yeah. technologies out there. We're so lucky and fortunate to live in a time where we do have a lot of technologies that can hopefully improve training, education and outcomes, not just from cardiac arrest, but other time sensitive and emergent disease states as well. No, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I see here that you're, uh, you're a contributor for the Huffington Post. Can you maybe tell us a bit about that? Sure. I was lucky enough years, years ago to um, be invited to write a piece during the American Heart Association's Heart Month on CPR. And from there, um, was able to um, contribute to the Huffington Post uh, on a semi-regular basis when, when time allowed. And um, I've written posts a lot about science, someone, science communication, resuscitation, but other topics that I'm interested in as well. Um, I've written posts on parenting and religion and travel. Um, I have a wide range of interests and the Huffington Post platform really allowed me to explore all of those. They actually just closed their um, Huffington Post contributor platform, I think it was like a month or two ago. Um, so that's not, I'm not able to do that through the Huffington Post anymore via that platform. No, but you had a good time when, when um, it was when it was up. Yeah, it was great. Um, and it's allowed me, I've, ta- I've started doing more posts on Medium, the blogging platform and some other sites um, in yeah, Philadelphia. Medium is pretty good. Yeah, and in Philadelphia, we have a number of local um, online platforms and I've written for those as well. Brilliant. Um, so I see you also um, went to March for Science uh, in Philadelphia. Can you maybe tell us all about that? Sure. So um, two years, well, so one, two years ago, um, I helped to organize the inaugural March for Science in Philadelphia. And um, this past April, we just held our second um, rally for science. So all around the country, there were a variety of different March for Science events. We decided in Philadelphia to do a rally for science um, and um, kick off a new organization that we're just starting to form out of the work we did with the March for Science, which is called Philadelphia Science Action. Um, And the idea is that we wanna be a resource to the city and to um, scientists to um, help encourage people and have resources for scientists who are interested in um, science policy and advocacy. Brilliant. I see, and I remember uh, that sort of took place across the entirety of America. So did you get a good turnout in Philadelphia? 
So for the first March for Science, we had 20 to 25,000 people um, march from our city hall across the city. It was a tremendous turnout. Um, <laughs> this past year for the rally, we intentionally um, scaled it back significantly, um, and we had about 600 people come to the rally. Um, we really want to focus, like I said, on being a sustained organization, not just a group that puts on a rally or a march every year. So yeah. that was more of a kickoff event for our Philadelphia Science Action Group um, to help uh, us create a more sustained action. So does that action group get together more frequently throughout the year? Yeah, we've been meeting once a week to once every other week. That's pretty, that's pretty good. It is, and we're uh, we're hopefully going to start having more targeted events. And um, we just had our strategic planning meeting last month, so we're we're starting to really uh, form as a, a sustainable organization. Cool. So, do you have any uh, websites that you could would maybe like to shout out for people to check out with regards to uh, CPR and resuscitation? So they can definitely check out the Center for Resuscitation Science at the University of Pennsylvania. That's my home institution. And our website is www.med.upenn.edu slash resuscitation. Um, if people are interested in learning CPR very quickly, um, the American Heart Association, the American Red Cross, have a number of quick training videos you could potentially learn cpr in less than two minutes if you really wanted to <laughs> if you're motivated if you're motivated <laughs> yes that's brilliant well marion i just want to take this opportunity to thank you very much for coming on the podcast and explaining to us all about cpr resuscitation and your future phd thank you sure thank you dr mike i appreciate it i hope you enjoyed that episode of the Psycom podcast if you would like to join me on the podcast to talk about your own research, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Mycographer. A new episode of the Psycom podcast is available to download every Sunday at noon GMT. Until then, take care. And remember, science isn't finished until it's communicated.